Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer here at HowStuffWorks and love all things tech. And while my producer, Tari, chortles on the other side of the glass, laughing at something I can only guess as to the reasons why, uh, we're going to go back and pick up on our story about Amiga. Now, I left off in the last episode about talking about the simulated hardware of the Amiga chipset with the Motorola 68000 processor and the breadboard simulated chips, these enormous circuits that would represent the teeny tiny chips that would be on the motherboard in the future Amiga. But what about the operating system? You really need an operating system in order to do anything useful with a computer. Developers would need an application programming interface, or API, in order to build programs to run on this machine. And users would need some sort of method to navigate the computer system. So for Amiga, that task fell to the team that was led by a man named Bob Parizzo, the chief of software engineering. And Parizzo had previously worked on mainframe computers with a company called Tandem, and Tandem made giant computer machines for the banking industry. Now, Parizzo's background was in machines that could handle multitasking, and so he set out to create an operating system that would take advantage of the hardware that Jay Miner's team was building over on the other side of Amiga, and he wanted to be able to run multiple applications simultaneously. This was in stark contrast with all the other home computers at the time. They were all designed so that they would run a single program at any one given time, generally speaking, and that if you wanted to launch a second program, you first would have to shut down the program you were in, or at least have it go into kind of a sleep mode. But Parizzo wanted a machine that could truly run multiple applications side by side. So he hired on several people to join his team, including uh, Robert J. McCall, or RJ, uh, Carl Sassenrath, Dale Luck, and Dave Needle all joined the Amiga team over the course of the next year or so. Um, RJ had previously worked as a software engineer at Williams Electronics and worked on video games. At Amiga, he would build out many of the system's basic routines for the OS, that, that made it all possible. He was also known for building a game for the Amiga that made use of the Joyboard peripheral that I mentioned in the last episode. That was that balance board peripheral that acted kind of like a joystick. This game was called Zen Meditation, and the goal was to sit perfectly still. The high-stress environment of building a new computer system meant a lot of folks would kind of give this a whirl, try and calm down, and when it came time to create an error message for the Amiga that would show in the event of a system crash, you know, you would get that uh, message kind of like the blue screen of death known uh, in the Windows circles. Well, for the Amiga, it was cheekily decided that they would call it the Guru Meditation Error. And that was kind of a nod to this game that RJ had made. Carl Sassenrath had worked as a television cameraman when he was a teenager and then would go on to get a degree in electrical engineering and computer science from the University of California at Davis and began working with Hewlett Packard as a programmer and system designer, including heading up a project team to develop a mouse-driven graphical user interface, or GUI, also known as a GUI. He became Amiga's manager of operating systems. 
Dale Luck got a degree in computer science from Michigan Technological University and would join Amiga as the manager of graphics software. And Dave Needle worked not just on software, but also on chip design. And all four would go on to do big things outside of Amiga later on. Carl Sassenrath was already working on ideas for an operating system that could handle multitasking before he had ever met Parizo. That fell right in line with what Bob Parizo wanted to do with the Amiga system. So the challenge was figuring out how to do multitasking without overtaxing the CPU and chipset and memory capabilities of this machine. They had to build out a, a system that would make efficient use of the resources the computer would have. Sassenrath developed an approach that would later be called a microkernel. This is the collection of features that are needed at minimum to implement an operating system. That includes stuff like inter-process communications, low-level address space management, thread management, that kind of thing. The concept of the microkernel actually predates Sassenrath's work. But his was a notable early example in the home computer space. Parizzo and his team were determined to incorporate a graphical user interface with this operating system, this uh, GUI or GUI. And this is how we access pretty much all consumer computer systems these days. Files are represented as icons. Clicking on an icon can execute a file. I know what I'm saying is all old news to you guys. This is the stuff you use every single day. But for the programmers out there, and also for old folks like myself, we remember the days of command lines. And in a command line computer system, back in the day, the way you would run a program is you would type the word run, typically, followed by the file name that you wanted to execute. You actually had to type all this stuff in. You had to navigate file trees and systems using typewritten commands. You had to change drives this way. And it wasn't really complicated to get the basic commands down, but it acted as a barrier to entry. It was something that intimidated people because it was rarely intuitive. It wasn't necessarily hard once you learned the basics, but the basics themselves seemed so foreign, so alien, that a lot of people felt that that meant computers were for quote-unquote smart people or nerds or something. The GUI made interacting with a computer much more easy, much more intuitive. I mean, we've seen this over and over again. The Mac OS, Windows, all of these different graphic user interfaces that carry over today into things like smartphone interfaces, they show that they're much easier to understand than those command lines. And in 1983, they were largely unheard of outside of specific spheres within the computing community. The model had actually been in development for years at other places, such as Xerox's Park facility, but it hadn't really made its way into consumer computers yet. Meanwhile, RJ was getting to work building out the Application Programming Interface, or API. Jay Miner once said that RJ had done this by locking himself in his office for three straight weeks and emerged only once to get some clarification from Sassenrath on something. The API that he eventually built was given the name Intuition. And because it was the product of one person, it was fairly uniform and straightforward. A lot of other APIs are the products of teams that are working sometimes at different times. Something work might get started by one team and then finished by another team. And so sometimes those sort of interfaces can be a little clunky to work with. 
because different people with different perspectives were working on it. But intuition was the product of one person at Amiga. So as long as you understood how RJ thought, you could figure out how to build applications for the Amiga. So you had these two teams. You had the hardware team, you had the software team. And they were both working very hard to create what would become the first Amiga computer. And the company planned to demonstrate something at the Consumer Electronics Show, or CES, in January 1984 in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, they knew they were not going to have the full prototype Amiga computer to show off, something that would look like a production model. They would have to rely on the simulated chips they had built on breadboards, so these enormous breadboards that would represent tiny, tiny chips. They knew the operating system was not going to be finished in time for this demonstration, but the team wanted to show off their work and the capabilities of their chipset design, and this would hopefully bring in more investors and pull in the money they would need to keep operations going and move toward a production model. Because their revenue-generating process, you know, they had been making stuff for the video game industry, the home video game industry, but that industry had collapsed. So now they were desperately trying to get work done and get investment money into the company to keep it going until they had a consumer-ready computer they could put on the market. Money was already tight. The team didn't have any idea of how they were going to ship their prototype to the trade show without endangering it. I mean, you had these enormous breadboards with thousands of wires connected to them, and disconnecting any of those wires would make the simulated chips not work properly. So RJ and Dale took it upon themselves, and they booked an extra airline seat in between them so that they could put the prototype in an airline seat and make sure that it was protected. In addition, they completely covered this prototype in pillows. Now, to book a seat, they had to give a passenger name. Now, this again, this is in the old days when it was pretty easy to go through an airport, but you still needed to have a name on a ticket if you wanted to book a seat. So the name they gave their passenger, this prototype computer, was Joe Pillow. The engineers, perhaps giddy from working so hard for so long, even drew a face on one of the pillows to give Joe Pillow a face. And apparently he wore a tie, too. Legend has it that Dale and RJ even tried to go so far as to get an airline meal for Joe, but the flight attendants drew the line there and said, no dice. At CES, the Amiga team had a booth with a backstage area where they kept their prototype. And this would keep the computer away from prying eyes and allow the team to control who could actually see it. They would hold demonstrations in this backstage area. They would approve people, bring them back there, and then show off this prototype. It was still working from those simulated chips, and it was enormous. It was sitting on top of a table, and more than a few onlookers would actually snoop around to make sure that the breadboards were in fact acting as a chipset and that there wasn't some other computer system hiding out of view that was creating the effects that they were seeing. Uh, it was not running the Amiga operating system because, as I said, the operating system was not finished at that point. So RJ and Dale had built in some demo software that would run directly off the chipset to show off what the computer could do. One of the demos that they built was a large ball. The ball had a checkered pattern on it, 
and the ball would bounce up and down on the bottom edge of the screen. And every time it would appear to hit that bottom edge, it would produce a booming noise in stereo. And it was a hasty demonstration, but that checkered ball would become an iconic symbol and would stand as the symbol for Amiga going forward. I've got a lot more to say about the birth of the Amiga, but first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. The demonstrations at that January 1984 CES were a success, and the team got back to work. They had a new goal that they wanted to meet, because back in those early 80s, there were actually two CES shows every year. There was one that would take place in the winter and one that would take place in the summer. The winter ones would take place in Las Vegas, and the summer ones tended to move around a little bit. But in 1984, that second show would happen in June in Chicago, Illinois. So the Amiga team had set a goal. They wanted to do more demonstrations of the Amiga, but this time they wanted to use prototype silicon chips not the simulated chips on breadboards. They wanted to actually produce the silicon chips and create a motherboard where they could run demonstrations off that, show that they had made some progress, and that they would soon be able to move into fabrication and production stages. Though at the time, they would only really be able to do this for a prototype. Because again, they were running short on funds at this point. The Chicago CES show was another success from a technological standpoint, but... Amiga was out of money. They were not going to be able to stay in operation without a significant investment. And the CEO of Amiga, Dave Morse, who had come from Tonka Toys to head up Amiga, sought out potential investors and partners, including at very established companies, uh, stuff like Sony and Hewitt-Packard and Philips, as well as Apple, which was younger but had been doing quite well, But none of those seemed particularly interested in investing in Amiga. One company, however, did offer up a pretty cutthroat deal. It was a $500,000 loan, and the company was Atari, the same company that Amiga co-founder Jay Miner had worked for in the 1970s. And he had left uh, Atari for another company before starting Amiga. Well, He left Atari because he had had disputes about bonuses and the direction of projects. Atari was the same company that had been rocked by the video game crash a year earlier. And here was Atari saying, yeah, we can loan you half a million dollars. But the deal was a really tough one. According to the agreement, Amiga would get that half million dollar loan, but it would have to repay Atari by the end of June 1984. Otherwise, Atari would end up owning all of Amiga's technology. This was a draconian deal, but at the same time, there weren't really any other options available, and Morse really had no other lifeline. So he signed this deal because it was either this or dissolve. Now, it could have unfolded that Amiga was never able to pay back that loan, and it would have become part of Atari, and maybe that would have saved Atari, though I doubt it. But at any rate, It's all a moot point because another company swooped in and kind of sort of rescued Amiga from being devoured by Atari. And that company was Commodore. I've done episodes about Commodore 
But here's a quick overview of its history. Commodore had started off as a typewriter repair and assembly company back in 1954. It was founded by a guy named Idek Tramilski, who changed his name to Jack Tramiel. He immigrated to the United States after he had been rescued from a Nazi work camp during World War II, and he founded the company Commodore in 1954. In 1965, he secured money from an investor named Irving Gould, and Irving Gould will play another important part in our Amiga story. In the 1970s, Commodore would diversify and start making calculators, largely relying upon chips from another company called Texas Instruments. But then Texas Instruments began building its own calculators and started competing with Commodore. And that taught Tramiel a lesson. He decided that he didn't want to depend upon some other company's products, only to have that company enter into direct competition with them further down the line. And so... Commodore decided to get into another business, and they acquired another company called Most Technology. Most Technology was the company that made the Most 6502 chip, and that chip powered many early computer systems and video game consoles. Commodore had been one of the early players on the personal computer scene. They introduced the PET, or PET, in 1977, the VIC-20 in 1981, and in 1982, Commodore introduced the best-selling computer of all time, the Commodore 64. But then, Commodore went into kind of a scorched-earth policy against competitors like Texas Instruments and tried to drive them out of the industry and become the dominant player. To do that, one of the big tactics was cutting prices. And they cut prices on their, their products to the point where the company was eating into its own reserves. And that's when Gould, the investor, and Tramiel, the founder, butted heads. Gould wanted his investment protected. Tramiel wanted to be the dominant force in personal computing. In late 1983, Gould would go to the board of directors and they decided to force Jack Tramiel to resign from the company he had founded. But while Tramiel wasn't in charge when Commodore would approach Amiga, he still plays an incredibly important part of this story. And this is really where things get Games of Thrones-ish. Although with the players involved, maybe I should call this video Game of Thrones. So, Jack Tramiel, he gets pushed out of his own company at the end of 1983. And while the folks over at Amiga were still getting ready for their first prototype debut at CES the following January. So at this point, Amiga is an independent company, and they're building up for CES 1984. Jack Tramiel gets kicked out of Commodore. He does not go into retirement. Instead, he saunters over to Warner Communications. Warner Communications was the parent company of Atari. Now... This was in the fallout of the video game crash of 1983. And at that point, Warner Communications really was trying to find a way to dump the personal computer and video game console division of Atari. The only part of Atari the company still wanted to hold on to was Atari's arcade division because it was still making money. But in the wake of the video game crash, the console and personal computer arms of Atari felt like an anchor. So Jack Tramiel comes over to Warner Communications and says, 
I'll take that off your hands. And he's able to take over the company without even making a down payment. It was one of the biggest, craziest deals in tech history, where Jack Tramiel essentially took over control of Atari. So now Jack Tramiel's in charge of Atari. And you remember that $500,000 loan deal I mentioned from Atari? The one that would force Amiga's technology to become Atari property if Amiga failed to pay back that loan by the end of June 1984? That was put together by Jack Tramiel, formerly of Commodore. And the company that would rescue Amiga was Commodore. So in a way, Amiga was put in the middle of a really ugly custody battle between an entrepreneur and his former company. Originally, Commodore was going to enter into a licensing agreement with Amiga to use the company's chipset in return for $4 million. But ultimately, Commodore executives decided that what made the most sense was to acquire Amiga outright. And so Commodore would acquire Amiga for the princely sum of $24 million, which obviously allowed Amiga to pay back that $500,000 loan, and Amiga would become part of Commodore. Jack Tramiel must have been pretty steamed to have his former company come in and rescue Amiga. So under his leadership, Atari got to work designing a new personal computing system, one that would compete directly against Commodore's Amiga computer. The official name for this other computer, the Atari computer, was the Atari ST, but some people would jokingly refer to this as the Jackintosh, because it seemed to ape Apple's Macintosh platform, and it was rushed into production by Jack Tramiel. Ultimately, this feud would be really harmful to both companies. Spoiler alert. They spent so much time facing off against each other that other companies like Apple, IBM, and later Microsoft were able to get a firmer foothold in the personal computer marketplace. They fought a fierce battle against each other while a larger war was going on, but I am getting ahead of myself, so we'll rejoin that discussion later on. At first, Commodore was pretty darn awesome to the Amiga team. The group got the resources they needed to keep developing their first computer system. And while there was an initial fear that Commodore was going to require the Amiga group to pick up stakes in California and move to Westchester, Pennsylvania, which is where Commodore headquarters were, those fears were initially quelled. The team did move, but they moved into larger offices about 10 miles away from where they had been working. So it wasn't that big of a change, and it meant that they were no longer in a very cramped working space. Amiga was able to get more equipment and able to hire on more engineers to get back at it, and things were looking up. But nothing lasts forever. I'll tell you more when we get back after this quick break to thank our sponsor. As the hardware had been taking shape, so was the operating system. The microkernel, named Exec, served as the core for this OS. The GUI, or graphical user interface, was coming together, but the OS would still need a way to handle the file system and some of the other tasks that neither Exec nor the GUI would touch on. There were some things that the OS needed to do that neither of these components could do. Now, at first, the solution to this was going to be creating code called the Commodore Amiga Operating System, or CAOS, Chaos. That might have been a little prophetic. Carl Sassenrath wrote up the design specifications for Chaos. What 
Chaos was supposed to be able to do. This would include some advanced operating system task management capabilities, like the ability to take the resources that were used by one application and then free those resources up if that application should crash. Since the Amiga was being built as a multitasking machine, that was a really important feature because without it, computer resources could get locked up in a crashed application while other applications are still working. And eventually, that means you would run out of computer memory or processing power if you couldn't get to those and you would have to do a hard reboot of your system in order to free them all up again. Design was falling behind. And so the team chose to outsource some elements of chaos to third-party developers. But despite pulling long hours and despite putting outsourced work in there, it became evident that there was no way the team was going to get everything done and be ready to launch the Amiga on time. And while Commodore was being really helpful, that was not going to fly. The Commodore did expect results. So in addition, the third party that was working on parts of Chaos, they found out that Amiga had been bought out by Commodore. And suddenly, this third party was demanding a whole lot more money for that outsourced work. Which is kind of like if you won the lottery and then all of your friends and family started hitting you up for cash because they know you've got deep pockets. That was what felt like was going on with this third party. Commodore tried to negotiate with them, but it all fell apart. And it became pretty clear the chaos just had fallen into some sort of orderless state of being. If only there were a word for that. Anyway, the team would pivot and seek out a new solution for their operating system. And they chose to use an existing operating system as their foundation. It was one that had been developed at the University of Cambridge for the PDP-11 computer system. It was called TripOS. It was developed by a guy named Dr. Tim King, and he created a new company called Metacomco, specifically to work with Amiga. He took the code of TripOS and then began to adapt it so that it would work on Amiga's chipsets and capabilities. And this new code was called Amiga DOS. Amiga DOS could do basic operating system functions, but it was not going to do everything that the design spec for Chaos had called for. It had no resource tracking, which meant that if an application crashed, the resources being used for that application when it was working might get locked up. So that was a bummer. One other battle that was taking place before the computer would launch would revolve around computer memory. Jay Miner had really wanted this Amiga computer to ship with 512 kilobytes of RAM because he knew that the operating system, the graphical user interface, would both require a decent amount of memory just to work on their own before you ever launched an application. But he wanted developers to be able to make good programs for this computer system. However, RAM was kind of expensive, and adding that much RAM would drive up the price of the system, and Commodore was worried that that would price the computer out of the market. Commodore wanted to ship the computer with 256 kilobytes of RAM. They fought over this. Eventually, they made a compromise. J Miner essentially threatened to walk away from the company. And the compromise was that the computer would ship with 256 kilobytes of RAM, as a standard, but it would also feature an expansion slot or expansion cage, as it was called, where it would be very easy to plug in additional RAM. Finally, the pieces were in place. The chipset and motherboard were finalized. The operating system was finished. The team then 
began to design the case. They even added their signatures to this design so that their signatures would all be on the inside of the Amiga computer case. This was something that a lot of early personal computer manufacturers did, where they had the designers sign their work, but it was all on the inside of the case where you would not see it unless you opened up the computer. Every single team member at Amiga, including those who joined after Commodore had purchased, were part of this. Plus, J Miner's dog, which was a cockapoo named Mitchie, they had a signature in there, paw print. Oh, and one other valuable team member had a signature in this, Joe Pillow. Joe Pillow's signature is inside the original Amiga. Dave Morse, who was the CEO of Amiga, he was now kind of the, the head of Commodore Amiga, even had a little bit of input on this case design. The Amiga computer, which was now called the Amiga 1000, would have a raised section on the bottom of the machine that would allow the user to kind of slide the keyboard in so it kind of nestles underneath the computer case a little bit. And that way you could move the keyboard out of the way whenever you're not using the computer. And it was now time to unveil the Amiga 1000 to the world. And so Commodore decided to make it a big media event. The company rented out the Lincoln Center in New York City, and every Commodore employee in attendance got to wear a tuxedo. They were given tuxedos by Commodore. They hired out a full orchestra to provide music before and during the event. And Bob Parizzo was chosen to present on behalf of Amiga. He was joined on stage by a computer operator who was working on an Amiga 1000. Uh, cameras would show both Bob Parizzo up on stage as well as the screen of the Amiga 1000, and that would be projected onto large screens behind the stage so that people in the audience could see what was happening in real time. Uh, Parizzo, by the way, came out as an incredible presenter. The presentation is actually available on YouTube if you want to watch it. I did watch it. It's pretty entertaining. The computer capabilities are obviously primitive by today's standards, but you have to think back in terms of 1985. They were revolutionary back then. Parizzo and the operators showed how the Amiga could handle graphics, including animation, how it could display more colors than other computers on the market, how the graphical user interface worked, how the computer could multitask, how you could use the same sets of data in a spreadsheet to generate multiple graphs and charts in different formats at the same time in different windows, how the sound system on the computer would work, and more. To make sure that the business crowd was appeased and would have something to talk about, he also showed off how the Amiga 1000 could run an IBM PC emulator. They used a program called Amiga Transformer, and the operator showed that using that program, you could then put in a PC-DOS disk into the system, boot into PC-DOS, then you could load in any software meant for the IBM PC and run it. And they showed off Lotus 123, which was developed for the IBM PC. And the argument here was you can use this device to run all your IBM business stuff, but it also does all this incredible sound and, and visual stuff that the IBM PC can't do. The presentation also involved an appearance by two celebrities. One was Deborah Harry, who was the lead singer of an awesome musical group called Blondie. My fellow children of the 80s know what I'm talking about. Blondie was a super cool music group. Go check them out if you haven't heard of them. And the other celebrity was the pop artist Andy Warhol, known for his counterculture take on iconography. Now, during this demonstration, 
a camera took a photo of Deborah Harry and a digitizer converted the photo into a monochromatic image on the Amiga screen. And Andy Warhol used tools in a program called ProPaint to add color. Uh, ProPaint was in prototype form. So it's amazing, but the whole thing worked. And that was a big shock to the programmers who had been struggling with ProPaint because it was frequently crashing in the weeks leading up to this demonstration. So I'm sure everyone backstage was hoping against hope that it would stay stable, and it did. The Amiga 1000 left a great impression. Lewis Wallace, who wrote about tech, said that it took the best qualities of the Macintosh, it took the processing power of an IBM computer, and it drastically cut the price tag, which seemed fairly accurate. A Macintosh in 1985 would set you back about $2,495, and the Macintosh had 128 kilobytes of memory. The Amiga 1000 had two versions. It had a 256-kilobyte version that was priced at $1,295, and even if you got the full 512-kilobyte version, that was $1,495. That was still a grand cheaper than Apple's Macintosh and had way more memory and had way more capabilities. But while the reaction to the Amiga was positive, the computer wasn't yet available for purchase. And there were other things going on at Commodore that would complicate matters for both the parent company and for Amiga. But we're going to save that for the next episode. In that next episode, we'll talk about changes at Commodore that caused issues with Amiga. We'll talk about how Jack Tramiel over at Atari kept on the fight against Commodore and Amiga. And talk about some of the cool stuff that actually was developed with the Amiga systems and what happened. Uh, so join me for that so we can continue this story. In the meantime, if you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's a company, a technology, person in tech, some other technologically adjacent topic that would be appropriate for the show, send me an email. Let me know what your suggestion is. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle with both of those is techstuffhsw. Don't forget stop by tpublic.com slash techstuff. That's tee slash techstuff. That's where we have all our tech stuff merchandise, and it's pretty awesome stuff. Every purchase you make goes to help the show, so we greatly appreciate it. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 